Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Chapter 23 of The Last of the Mohicans a narrative of 1757 by James Fenimore Cooper. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 23 Quote, But though the beast of game the privilege of chase may claim, Though space and law the stag we lend, Ere hound we slip, or bow we bend, Whoever wrecked, where, how, or when, The prowling fox was trapped or slain. Unquote. From Lady of the Lake It is unusual to find an encampment of the natives, Like those of the more instructed whites, Guarded by the presence of armed men. Well informed of the approach of every danger, while it is yet at a distance, the Indian generally rests secure under his knowledge of the signs of the forest, and the long and difficult paths that separate him from those he has most reason to dread. But the enemy who, by any lucky concurrence of accidents, has found means to elude the vigilance of the scouts, will seldom meet with sentinels near home to sound the alarm. In addition to this general usage, the tribes, friendly to the French, knew too well the weight of the blow that had just been struck, to apprehend any immediate danger from the hostile nations that were tributary to the crown of Britain. When Duncan and David, therefore, found themselves in the center of the children, who played the antics already mentioned, it was without the least previous intimation of their approach. but. Soon as they were observed, the whole of the juvenile pack raised by common consent a shrill and warning hoop, and then sank, as it were, by magic, from before the sight of their visitors. The naked tawny bodies of the crouching urchins blended so nicely at that hour with the withered herbage, that at first it seemed as if the earth had, in truth, swallowed up their forms. 
though when surprise permitted Duncan to bend his look more curiously about the spot, he found it everywhere met by dark, quick, and rolling eyeballs. Gathering no encouragement from this startling presage of the nature of the scrutiny he was likely to undergo from the more mature judgments of the men, there was an instant when the young soldier would have retreated. It was, however, too late to appear to hesitate. The cry of the children had drawn a dozen warriors to the door of the nearest lodge, where they stood clustered in a dark and savage group, gravely awaiting the nearer approach of those who had unexpectedly come among them. David, in some measure familiarized to the scene, led the way, with the steadiness that no slight obstacle was likely to disconcert, into this very building. It was the principal edifice of the village, though roughly constructed of the bark and branches of trees, being the lodge in which the tribe held its councils and public meetings during their temporary residence on the borders of the English province. Duncan found it difficult to assume the necessary appearance of unconcern, as he brushed the dark and powerful frames of the savages who thronged its threshold, but conscious that his existence depended on his presence of mind, he trusted to the discretion of his companion, whose footsteps he closely followed, endeavoring, as he proceeded, to rally his thoughts for the occasion. His blood curdled when he found himself in absolute contact with such fierce and implacable enemies. But he so far mastered his feelings to pursue his way into the center of the lodge, with an exterior that did not betray the weakness. Imitating the example of the deliberate Gamut, he drew a bundle of fragrant brush from beneath a pile that filled the corner of the hut, and seated himself in silence. So soon as their visitor had passed, the observant warriors fell back from the entrance, and arranging themselves about him, they seemed patiently to await the moment when it might comport with the dignity of the stranger to speak. By far the greater number stood leaning, in lazy, lounging attitudes, against the upright post that supported the crazy building, while three or four of the oldest and most distinguished of the chiefs placed themselves on the earth a little more in advance. A flaring torch was burning in the place, and set its red glare from face to face and figure to figure, as it waved in the currents of air. Duncan, profited by its light to read the probable character of his reception, in the countenances of his host, but his ingenuity availed him little against the cold artifices of the people he had encountered. The chiefs in front scarce cast a glance at his person, keeping their eyes on the ground with an air that might have been intended for respect, but which it was quite easy to construe into distrust. The men in the shadow were less reserved. Duncan soon detected their searching but stolen looks, which, in truth, scanned his person and attire inch by inch, leaving no emotion of the countenance, no gesture, no line of the paint, nor even the fashion of a garment, unheeded and without comment. At length, one whose hair was beginning to be sprinkled with gray, but whose sinewy limbs and firm tread announced that he was still equal to the duties of manhood, advanced out of the gloom of a corner, 
whither he had probably posted himself to make his observations unseen, and spoke. He used the language of the Wyandots or Hurons. His words were consequently unintelligible to Hayward, though they seemed by the gestures that accompanied them to be uttered more in courtesy than anger. The latter shook his head and made a gesture indicative of his inability to reply. Do none of my brothers speak the French or the English? he said in the former language, looking about him from countenance to countenance, in hopes of finding a nod of assent. Though more than one had turned as if to catch the meaning of his words, they remained unanswered. I should be grieved to think, continued Duncan, speaking slowly and using the simplest French of which he was the master, to believe that none of this wise and brave nation understand the language that the Grand Marquis uses when he talks to his children? His heart would be heavy did he believe his red warriors paid him so little respect. A long and grave pause succeeded, during which no movement of a limb nor any expression of an eye betrayed the expression produced by this remark. Duncan, who knew that silence was a virtue among his host, gladly had recourse to the custom in order to arrange his ideas. At length, the same warrior who had before addressed him replied, by dryly demanding in the language of the Canadas, When our great father speaks to his people, is it with the tongue of a Huron? He knows no difference in his children whether the color of the skin be red or black or white returned Duncan evasively, though chiefly he is satisfied with the brave Hurons. "'In what manner will he speak?' demanded the wary chief, when the runners count to him the scalps which five nights ago grew on the heads of the Yengeese. "'They were his enemies,' said Duncan, shuddering involuntarily, "'and doubtless he will say it is good. My Hurons are very gallant. Our Canadian father does not think it. Instead of looking forward to reward his Indians, his eyes are turned backward. He sees the dead Yingis, but no Huron. What can this mean? A great chief like him has more thoughts than tongues. He looks to see that no enemies are on his trail. The canoe of a dead warrior will not float on the Horican, returned the savage gloomily. His ears are open to the Delawares, who are not our friends, and they fill them with lies. It cannot be. See? He has bid me, who am a man that knows the art of healing, to go to his children, the Red Hurons of the Great Lakes, and ask if any are sick. Another silence succeeded this enunciation of the character Duncan had assumed. Every eye was simultaneously bent on his person, as if to inquire into the truth or falsehood of the declaration, with an intelligence and keenness that caused the subject of their scrutiny to tremble for the result. He was, however, relieved again by the former speaker. "'Do the cunning men of the Canadas paint their skins?' the Huron coldly continued. "'We have heard them boast that their faces were pale.' when an indian chief comes among his white fathers returned duncan with great steadiness 
he lays aside his buffalo robe to carry the shirt that is offered him. My brothers have given me paint, and I wear it. A low murmur of applause announced that the compliment of the tribe was favorably received. The elderly chief made a gesture of commendation, which was answered by most of his companions, who each drew forth a hand and uttered a brief exclamation of pleasure. Duncan began to breathe more freely, believing that the weight of his examination was passed, and, as he had already prepared a simple and probable tale to support his pretend occupation, his hopes of ultimate success grew brighter. After a silence of a few moments, as if adjusting his thoughts, in order to make a suitable answer to the declaration their guest had just given, another warrior arose and placed himself in an attitude to speak. While his lips were yet in the act of parting, a low but fearful sound arose from the forest. It was immediately succeeded by a high, shrill yell that was drawn out until it equaled the longest and most plaintive howl of the wolf. The sudden and terrible interruption caused Duncan to start from his seat, unconscious of everything but the effect produced by so frightful a cry. At the same moment the warriors glided in a body from the lodge, and the outer air was filled with loud shouts that nearly drowned those awful sounds which were still ringing beneath the arches of the woods. Unable to command himself any longer, the youth broke from the place, and presently stood in the center of a disorderly throng, that included everything having life within the limits of the encampment. Men, women, and children, the aged, the infirm, the active, and the strong, were alike abroad, some exclaiming aloud, others clapping their hands with a joy that seemed frantic, and all expressing their savage pleasure in some unexpected event. Though astounded at first by the uproar, Hayward was soon able to find its solution by the scene that followed. There yet lingered sufficient light in the heavens to exhibit those bright openings among the treetops, where different paths left the clearing to enter the depths of the wilderness. Beneath one of them, a line of warriors issued from the woods and advanced slowly toward the dwellings. One in front bore a short pole, on which, as it afterwards appeared, were suspended several human scalps. The startling sounds that Duncan had heard were what the whites have not inappropriately called the, quote, death halo, unquote, and each repetition of the cry was intended to announce to the tribe the fate of an enemy. Thus far the knowledge of Hayward assisted him in the explanation, and as he now knew that the interruption was caused by the unlooked-for return of a successful war-party, every disagreeable sensation was quieted in inward congratulation for the opportune relief and insignificance it conferred on himself. When at the distance of a few hundred feet from the lodges the newly arrived warriors halted, their plaintive and terrific cry, which was intended to represent equally the wailings of the dead and the triumph to the victors, had entirely ceased. One of their number now called aloud in words that were far from appalling, though not more intelligible to those whose ears they were intended, than their expressive yells. 
it would be difficult to convey a suitable idea of the savage ecstasy with which the news thus imparted was received. The whole encampment, in a moment, became a scene of the most violent bustle and commotion. The warriors drew their knives, and flourishing them, they arranged themselves in two lines, forming a lane that extended from war party to the lodges. The squaws seized clubs, axes, or whatever weapon of offense first offered itself to their hands, and rushed eagerly to act their part in the cruel game that was at hand. Even the children would not be excluded, but boys, little able to wield the instruments, tore the tomahawks from the belts of their fathers and stole into the ranks, apt imitators of the savage traits exhibited by their parents. Large piles of brush lay scattered about the clearing, and a wary and aged squaw was occupied in firing as many as might serve to light the coming exhibition. As the flame arose, its power exceeded that of the parting day, and assisted to render objects at the same time more distinct and more hideous. The whole scene formed a striking picture, whose frame was composed of the dark and tall border of pines. The warriors just arrived were the most distant figures. A little in advance stood two men, who were apparently selected from the rest as the principal actors in what was to follow. The light was not strong enough to render their features distinct, though it was quite evident that they were governed by very different emotions. While one stood erect and firm, prepared to meet his fate like a hero, the other bowed his head, as if palsied by terror or stricken with shame. The high-spirited Duncan felt a powerful impulse of admiration and pity toward the former, though no opportunity could offer to exhibit his generous emotions. He watched his slightest movement, however, with eager eyes, and, as he traced the fine outline of his admirably proportioned and active frame, he endeavored to persuade himself that if the powers of man, seconded by such noble resolution, could bear one harmless through so severe a trial, the youthful captive before him might hope for success in the hazardous race he was about to run. Insensibly, the young man drew nigher to the swarthy lines of the Hurons, and scarcely breathed. So intense became his interest in the spectacle. Just then the signal yell was given, and the momentary quiet that had preceded it was broken by a burst of cries that far exceeded any before heard. The more abject of the two victims continued motionless, but the other bounded from the place of the cry with the activity and swiftness of a deer. Instead of rushing through the hostile lines, as had been expected, he just entered the dangerous defile, and before time was given for a single blow, turned short, and leaping the heads of a row of children, he gained at once the exterior and safer side of the formidable array. The artifice was answered by a hundred voices raised in imprecations, and the whole of the excited multitude broke from their order and spread themselves about the place in wild confusion. A dozen blazing piles now shed their lurid brightness on the place, which resembled some unhallowed and supernatural arena in which the malicious demons had assembled to act their bloody and lawless rites. The forms in the background looked like unearthly beings, gliding before the eye 
and cleaving the air with frantic and unmeaning gestures, while the savage passions of such as passed the flames were rendered fearfully distinct by the gleams that shot athwart their inflamed visages. It will easily be understood that amid such a concourse of vindictive enemies no breathing time was allowed the fugitive. There was a single moment when it seemed as if he would have reached the forest, but the whole body of his captors threw themselves before him and drove him back into the center of his relentless persecutors. Turning like a headed deer, he shot with the swiftness of an arrow through a pillar of forked flame, and passing the whole multitude harmless, he appeared on the opposite side of the clearing. Here, too, he was met and turned by a few of the older and more subtle of the Hurons. Once more he tried the throng, as if seeking safety in its blindness, and then several moments succeeded, during which Duncan believed the active and courageous young stranger was lost. Nothing could be distinguished but a dark mass of human forms tossed and involved in inexplicable confusion. Arms, gleaming knives, and formidable clubs appeared above them but the blows were evidently given at random. The awful effect was heightened by the piercing shrieks of the women and the fierce yells of the warriors. Now and then Duncan caught a glimpse of a light form cleaving the air in some desperate bound, and he rather hoped than believed that the captive yet retained the command of his astonishing powers of activity. Suddenly the multitude rolled backward and approached the spot where he himself stood, the heavy body in the rear pressed upon the women and children in front and bore them to the earth. The stranger reappeared in the confusion. Human power could not, however, much longer endure so severe a trial. Of this the captive seemed conscious. Profiting by the momentary opening, he darted from among the warriors and made a desperate and what seemed to Duncan a final effort to gain the wood. As if aware that no danger was to be apprehended from the young soldier, the fugitive nearly brushed his person in his flight. A tall and powerful Huron who had husbanded his forces pressed close upon his heels, and with an uplifted arm menaced a fatal blow. Duncan thrust forth a foot, and the shock precipitated the eager savage headlong, many feet in advance of his intended victim. Thought itself is not quicker than was the motion with which the latter profited by the advantage. He turned, gleamed like a meteor again before the eyes of Duncan, and at the next moment, when the latter recovered his recollection and gazed around in quest of the captive, he saw him quietly leaning against a small painted post, which stood before the door of the principal lodge. Apprehensive that the part he had taken in the escape might prove fatal to himself, Duncan left the place without delay. He followed the crowd which drew nigh the lodges, gloomy and sullen, like any other multitude that had been disappointed in an execution. Curiosity, or perhaps a better feeling, induced him to approach the stranger. He found him standing with one arm cast about the protecting post, and breathing thick and hard after his exertions but disdaining to permit a single sign of suffering to escape. His person was now protected by immemorial and sacred usage, until the tribe and council had deliberated and determined 
on his fate. It was not difficult, however, to foretell the result, if any presage could be drawn from the feelings of those who crowded the place. There was no term of abuse known to the Huron vocabulary that the disappointed woman did not lavishly expend on the successful stranger. They flouted at his efforts, and told him, with bitter scoffs, that his feet were better than his hands, and that he merited wings while he knew not how to use an arrow or a knife. To all this the captain made no reply, but was content to preserve an attitude in which dignity was singularly blended with disdain. Exasperated as much by his composure as by his good fortune, their words became unintelligible, and were succeeded by shrill, piercing yells. Just then the crafty squaw who had taken the necessary precaution to fire the piles made her way through the throng, and cleared a place for herself in front of the captive. The squalid and withered person of this hag might well have obtained for her the character of possessing more than human cunning. Throwing back her light vestment, she stretched forth her long skinny arm in derision, and using the language of the Lenape, as more intelligible to the subject of her jibes, she commenced aloud. Look, ye Delaware, she said, snapping her fingers in his face, your nation is a race of women, and the whole is better fitted to your hands than the gun. Your squaws are the mothers of deer, but if a bear or a wildcat or a serpent were born among you, ye would flee. The Huron girl shall make you petticoats, and we will find you a husband. A burst of savage laughter succeeded this attack, during which the soft and musical merriment of the younger females strangely chimed with the cracked voices of their older and more malignant companion. But the stranger was superior to all their efforts. His head was immovable, nor did he betray the slightest consciousness that any were present except when his haughty eye rolled toward the dusky forms of the warriors, who stalked in the background, silent and sullen observers of the scene. Infuriated at the self-command of the captive, the woman placed her arms akimbo, and throwing herself in a posture of defiance, she broke out anew in a torrent of words that no art of ours could commit successfully to paper. Her breath was, however, expended in vain, for although distinguished in her nation as a proficient in the art of abuse, she was permitted to work herself into such a fury as actually to foam at the mouth, without causing a muscle to vibrate in the motionless figure of the stranger. The effect of this indifference began to extend itself to the other spectators, and a youngster, who was just quitting the condition of a boy to enter the state of manhood, attempted to assist the termagant by flourishing his tomahawk before their victim, and adding his empty boast to the taunts of the women. Then, indeed, the captive turned his face toward the light, and looked down on the stripling with an expression that was superior to contempt. At the next moment he resumed his quiet and reclining attitude against the post. But the change of posture had permitted Duncan to exchange glances with the firm and piercing eyes of Uncas, breathless with amazement, and heavily oppressed with the critical situation of his friend, 
Hayward recoiled before the look, trembling lest its meeting might, in some unknown manner, hasten the prisoner's fate. There was not, however, any instant cause for such an apprehension. Just then a warrior forced his way into the exasperated crowd. Motioning the woman and children aside with a stern gesture, he took Uncas by the arm and led him toward the door of the council lodge. Thither all the chiefs and most of the distinguished warriors followed, among whom the anxious Hayward found means to enter without attracting any dangerous attention to himself. A few moments were consumed in disposing of those present in a manner suitable to their rank and influence in the tribe. An order very similar to that adopted in the preceding interview was observed, the aged and superior chiefs occupying the area of the spacious apartment within the powerful light of a glaring torch, while their juniors and inferiors were arranged in the background, presenting a dark outline of swarthy marked visages. In the very center of the lodge, immediately under an opening that admitted the twinkling light of one or two stars, stood Uncas, calm, elevated, and collected. His high and haughty carriage was not lost on his captors, who often bent their looks on his person with eyes which, while they lost none of their inflexibility of purpose, plainly betrayed their admiration of the stranger's daring. The case was different with the individual whom Duncan had observed to stand forth with his friend previously to the desperate trial of speed, and who, instead of joining in the chase, had remained throughout its turbulent uproar like a cringing statue, expressive of shame and disgrace. Though not a hand had been extended to greet him, nor yet an eye had condescended to watch his movements, he had also entered the lodge, as though impelled by a fate to whose decrees he submitted seemingly without a struggle. Hayward profited by the first opportunity to gaze in his face. Secretly apprehensive he might find the features of another acquaintance. But they proved to be those of a stranger, and, what was still more inexplicable, of one who bore all the distinctive marks of a Huron warrior. Instead of mingling with his tribe, however, he sat apart, a solitary being in a multitude his form shrinking into a crouching and abject attitude, as if anxious to fill as little space as possible. When each individual had taken his proper station, and silence reigned in the place, the gray-haired chief, already introduced to the reader, spoke aloud in the language of the Lenny Lenape. Delaware, he said, though one of a nation of women, you have proved yourself a man. I would give you food, but he who eats with a Huron should become his friend. Rest in peace till the morning sun, when our last words shall be spoken. Seven nights, and as many summer days, have I fasted on the trail of the Hurons, Uncas coldly replied. The children of the Lenape know how to travel the path of the just without lingering to eat. Two of my young men are in pursuit of your companion,' resumed the other, without appearing to regard the boast of his captive. "'When they get back, then will our wise man say to you, Live or die.' "'Has the Huron no ears?' scornfully exclaimed Uncas. "'Twice since he has been your prisoner has the Delaware heard a gun that he knows. 
your young men will never come back. A short and sullen pause succeeded this bold assertion. Duncan, who understood the Mohican to allude to the fatal rifle of the scout, bent forward in earnest observation of the effect it might produce on the conquerors. But the chief was content with simply retorting, If the Lenape are so skillful, why is one of their bravest warriors here? He followed the steps of a flying coward and fell into a snare. The cunning beaver may be caught. As Uncas thus replied, he pointed with his finger toward the solitary Huron, but without deigning to bestow any other notice on so unworthy an object. The words of the answer and the air of the speaker produced a strong sensation among his auditors. Every eye rolled sullenly toward the individual indicated by the simple gesture, and a low, threatening murmur passed through the crowd. The ominous sounds reached the outer door, and the women and children pressing into the throng no gap had been left between shoulder and shoulder that was not now filled with the dark lineaments of some eager and curious human countenance. In the meantime, the more aged chiefs in the center communed with each other in short and broken sentences. Not a word was uttered that did not convey the meaning of the speaker in the simplest and most energetic form. Again, a long and deeply solemn pause took place. It was known by all present to be the brave precursor of a weighty and important judgment. They who composed the outer circle of faces were on tiptoe to gaze, and even the culprit for an instant forgot his shame in a deeper emotion, and exposed his abject features in order to cast an anxious and troubled glance at the dark assemblage of chiefs. The silence was finally broken by the aged warrior so often named. He arose from the earth, and moving past the immovable form of Uncas, placed himself in a dignified attitude before the offender. At that moment the withered squall already mentioned moved into the circle in a slow, sidling sort of dance, holding the torch and muttering the indistinct words of what might have been a species of incantation. Though her presence was altogether an intrusion, it was unheeded. Approaching Uncas, she held the blazing brand in such a manner as to cast its red glare on his person, and to expose the slightest emotion of his countenance. The Mohican maintained his firm and haughty attitude, and his eyes, so far from deigning to meet her inquisitive look, dwelt steadily on the distance, as though it penetrated the obstacles which impeded the view, and looked into futurity. Satisfied with her examination, she left him, with a slight expression of pleasure, and proceeded to practice the same trying experiment on her delinquent countrymen. The young Huron was in his war-paint and very little of a finely molded form was concealed by his attire. The light rendered every limb and joint discernible, and Duncan turned away in horror when he saw they were writhing in irrepressible agony. The woman was commencing a low and plaintive howl at the sad and shameful spectacle, when the chief put forth his hand and gently pushed her aside. "'Read that bends,' he said, addressing the young culprit by name and in his proper language. Though the great spirit has made you pleasant to the eyes, it would have been better that you had not been born. 
your tongue is loud in the village, but in battle it is still. None of my young men strike the tomahawk deeper into the war-post, none of them so lightly on the engase. The enemy know the shape of your back, but they have never seen the color of your eyes. Three times have they called on you to come, and as often did you forget to answer. Your name will never be mentioned again in our tribe. It is already forgotten. As the chief slowly uttered these words, pausing impressively between each sentence, the culprit raised his face, in deference to the other's rank and years. Shame, horror, and pride struggled in its lineaments. His eye, which was contracted with inward anguish, gleamed on the persons of those whose breath was his fame, and the latter emotion for an instant predominated. He arose to his feet, and bearing his bosom looked steadily on the keen glittering knife that was already upheld by his inexorable judge. As the weapon passed slowly into his heart, he even smiled, as if in joy at having found death less dreadful than he had anticipated, and fell heavily on his face at the feet of the rigid and unyielding form of Uncas. The squaw gave a loud and plaintive yell, dashed the torch to the earth, and buried everything in darkness. The whole shattering group of spectators glided from the lodge like troubled sprites, and Duncan thought that he and the yet throbbing body of the victim of an Indian judgment had now become its only tenants. End of chapter 23 This reading by Gary W. Sherwin of Yukon, Pennsylvania in the autumn of 2007Chapter 24 of The Last of the Mohicans, a narrative of 1757 by James Fenimore Cooper. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 24 Quote, Thus spoke the sage, the kings without delay dissolve the council, and their chief obey." Unquote. From Pope's Iliad. A single moment served to convince the youth that he was mistaken. A hand was laid with a powerful pressure on his arm, and the low voice of Uncas muttered in his ear, "'The Hurons are dogs. The sight of a coward's blood can never make a warrior tremble. The Greyhead and the Sagamore are safe.' and the rifle of Hawkeye is not asleep. Go! Uncas and the open hand are now strangers. It is enough. Hayward would gladly have heard more, but a gentle push from his friend urged him toward the door, and admonished him of the danger that might attend the discovery of their intercourse. Slowly and reluctantly, yielding to the necessity, he quitted the place, and mingled with the throng that had hovered nigh. The dying fires in the clearing cast a dim and uncertain light on the dusky figures that were silently stalking to and fro, and occasionally a brighter gleam than common glanced into the lodge and exhibited the figure of Uncas, still maintaining his upright attitude, 
near the dead body of the Huron. A knot of warriors soon entered the place again, and reissuing, they bore the senseless remains into the adjacent woods. After this termination of the scene, Duncan wandered among the lodges, unquestioned and unnoticed, endeavoring to find some trace of her in whose behalf he incurred the risk he ran. In the present temper of the tribe, it would have been easy to have fled and rejoined his companions, had such a wish crossed his mind. But in addition to the never-ceasing anxiety on account of Alice, a fresher though feebler interest in the fate of Uncas assisted to chain him to the spot. He continued, therefore, to stray from hut to hut, looking into each only to encounter additional disappointment, until he had made the entire circuit of the village. Abandoning a species of inquiry that proved so fruitless, he retraced his steps to the council lodge, resolved to seek and question David in order to put an end to his doubts. On reaching the building, which had proved alike the seat of judgment and the place of execution, the young man found that the excitement had already subsided, the warriors had reassembled, and were now calmly smoking, while they conversed gravely on the chief incidents of their recent expedition to the head of the Horican. Though the return of Duncan was likely to remind them of his character and the suspicious circumstances of his visit, it produced no visible sensation. So far the terrible scene that had just occurred proved favorable to his views, and he required no other prompter than his own feelings to convince him of the expediency of profiting by so unexpected an advantage. Without seeming to hesitate, he walked into the lodge and took his seat with a gravity that accorded admirably with the deportment of his host. A hasty but searching glance sufficed to tell him that though Uncas still remained where he had left him, David had not reappeared. No other restraint was imposed on the former than the watchful looks of a young Huron, who had placed himself at hand, though an armed warrior leaned against the post that formed one side of the narrow doorway. In every other respect the captive seemed at liberty. Still, he was excluded from all participation in the discourse, and possessed much more of the air of some finely moulded statue than a man having life and volition. Hayward had too recently witnessed a frightful instance of the prompt punishments of the people in whose hands he had fallen to hazard and exposure by any officious boldness. He would greatly have preferred silence and meditation to speech, when a discovery of his real condition might prove so instantly fatal. Unfortunately for this prudent resolution, his entertainers appeared otherwise disposed. He had not long occupied the seat wisely taken a little in the shade when another of the elder warriors who spoke the French language addressed him. "'My Canada father does not forget his children,' said the chief. "'I thank him. An evil spirit lives in the wife of one of my young men. Can the cunning stranger frighten him away?' Hayward possessed some knowledge of the mummery practiced among the Indians in the cases of such supposed visitations. He saw at a glance that the circumstance might possibly be improved to further his own ends. It would, therefore, have been difficult just then to have uttered a proposal that would have given him more satisfaction. 
aware of the necessity of preserving the dignity of his imaginary character, however, he repressed his feelings, and answered with suitable mystery. Spirits differ. Some yield to the power of wisdom, while others are too strong. My brother is a great medicine, said the cunning savage. He will try? A gesture of assent was the answer. The Huron was content with the assurance, and resuming his pipe, he awaited the proper moment to move. The impatient Hayward, inwardly execrating the cold customs of the savages, which required such sacrifices to appearance, was fain to assume an air of indifference equal to that maintained by the chief, who was, in truth, a near relative of the afflicted woman. The minutes lingered, and the delay seemed an hour to the adventurer in empiricism, when the Huron laid aside his pipe and drew his robe across his breast, as if about to lead the way to the lodge of the invalid. Just then a warrior of powerful frame darkened the door, and stalking silently among the attentive group, he seated himself on one end of the low pile of brush which sustained Duncan. The latter cast an impatient look at his neighbor, and felt his flesh creep with uncontrollable horror when he found himself in actual contact with Magua. The sudden return of this artful and dreaded chief caused a delay in the departure of the Huron. Several pipes that had been extinguished were lighted again, while the newcomer, without speaking a word, drew his tomahawk from his girdle, and filling the bowl on its head, began to inhale the vapors of the weed through the hollow handle, with as much indifference as if he had not been absent to weary days on a long and toilsome hunt. Ten minutes, which appeared so many ages to Duncan, might have passed in this manner, and the warriors were fairly enveloped in a cloud of white smoke, before any of them spoke. "'Welcome,' one at length muttered. "'Has my friend found the moose?' "'The young men stagger under their burdens,' returned Mokwa. "'Let Reed that bends go on the hunting path. He will meet them.' A deep and awful silence succeeded the utterance of the forbidden name. Each pipe dropped from the lips of its owner, as though all had inhaled an impurity at the same instant. The smoke wreathed above their heads in little eddies, and curling in a spiral form it ascended swiftly through the opening in the roof of the lodge, leaving the place beneath clear of its fumes, and each dark visage distinctly visible. The looks of most of the warriors were riveted on the earth, though a few of the younger and less gifted of the party suffered their wild and glaring eyeballs to roll in the direction of a white-headed savage who sat between two of the most venerated chiefs of the tribe. There was nothing in the air or attire of this Indian that would seem to entitle him to such a distinction. The former was rather depressed than remarkable for the bearing of the natives, and the later was such as was commonly worn by the ordinary men of the nation. Like most around him, for more than a minute, his look, too, was on the ground, but, trusting his eyes at length to steal a glance aside, he perceived that he was becoming an object of general attention. Then he arose and lifted his voice in the general silence. "'It was a lie,' he said. "'I had no son. He who was called by that name is forgotten. 
His blood was pale, and it came not from the veins of Huron. The wicked Chippewas cheated my squaw. The Great Spirit has said that the family of Wis and Tush should end. He is happy he knows that the evil of his race dies with himself. I have done. The speaker, who was the father of the recreant young Indian, looked round and about him, as if seeking commendation of his stoicism in the eyes of the auditors. But the stern customs of his people had made too severe an exaction on the feeble old man. The expression of his eye contradicted his figurative and boastful language, while every muscle in his wrinkled visage was working with anguish. Standing a single minute to enjoy his bitter triumph, he turned away, as if sickening at the gaze of men, and, veiling his face in his blanket, he walked from the lodge with the noiseless step of an Indian, seeking, in the privacy of his own abode, the sympathy of one like himself, aged, forlorn, and childless. The Indians who believe in the hereditary transmission of virtues and defects in character suffered him to depart in silence. Then, with an elevation of breeding, that many in a more cultivated state of society might profitably emulate, one of the chiefs drew the attention of the young men from the weakness they had just witnessed, by saying in a cheerful voice, addressing himself in courtesy to Magua, as the newest comer, "'The Delawares have been like bears after the honey-pots, prowling around my village. But who has ever found a Huron asleep?' The darkness of the impending cloud which precedes a burst of thunder was not blacker than the brow of Magua as he exclaimed, The Delawares of the Lakes! Not so, they who bear the petticoats of squaws on their own river. One of them has been passing the tribe. Did my young men take his scalp? His legs were good, though his arm is better for the hoe than the tomahawk, returned the other pointing to the immovable form of Uncas. Instead of manifesting any womanish curiosity to feast his eyes with the sight of a captive from a people he was known to have so much reason to hate, Maqua continued to smoke with the meditative air that he usually maintained when there was no immediate call on his cunning or his eloquence. Although secretly amazed at the facts communicated by the speech of the aged father, he permitted himself to ask no questions, reserving his inquiries for a more suitable moment. It was only after a sufficient interval that he shook the ashes from his pipe, replaced the tomahawk, tightened his girdle, and arose, casting for the first time a glance in the direction of the prisoner, who stood a little behind him. The wary, though seemingly abstracted, Uncas caught a glimpse of the movement and turning suddenly to the light, their looks met. Near a minute these two bold and untamed spirits stood regarding one another, steadily in the eye, neither quailing in the least before the fierce gaze he encountered. The form of Uncas dilated, and his nostrils opened like those of a tiger at bay, but so rigid and unyielding was his posture that he might easily have been converted by the imagination into an exquisite and faultless representation of the warlike deity of his tribe. The lineaments and the quivering features of Maqua proved more ductile. 
his countenance gradually lost its character of defiance in an expression of ferocious joy, and heaving a breath from the very bottom of his chest, he pronounced aloud the formidable name of L'Esophagile. Each warrior sprang upon his feet at the utterance of the well-known appellation, and there was a short period during which the stoical constancy of the natives was completely conquered by surprise. The hated and yet respected name was repeated as by one voice, carrying the sound even beyond the limits of the lodge. The women and children who lingered around the entrance took up the words in an echo, which was succeeded by another shrill and plaintive howl. The later was not yet ended when the sensation among the men had entirely abated. Each one in presence seated himself as though ashamed of his precipitation. But it was many minutes before the meaning eyes ceased to roll toward their captive, in curious examination of a warrior who had so often proved his prowess at the best and proudest of their nation. Uncas enjoyed his victory, but was content with merely exhibiting his triumph by a quiet smile, an emblem of scorn which belongs to all time and every nation. Maqua caught the expression, and raising his arm, he shook it at the captive, the light silver ornaments attached to his bracelets rattling with the trembling agitation of the limb, as in a tone of vengeance he exclaimed in English, Mohican, you die! The healing waters will never bring the dead Hurons to life, returned Uncas in the music of the Delawares. The tumbling river washes their bones. Their men are squaws, their women owls. Go, call together the Huron dogs that they may look upon a warrior. My nostrils are offended. They scent the blood of a coward. The latter allusion struck deep, and the injury rankled. Many of the Hurons understood the strange tongue in which the captive spoke, among which number was Maqua. This cunning savage beheld and instantly profited by his advantage. Dropping the light robe of skin from his shoulder, he stretched forth his arm and commenced a burst of his dangerous and artful eloquence. However much his influence among his people had been impaired by his occasional and besetting weakness, as well as by his desertion of the tribe, his courage and his fame as an orator were undeniable. He never spoke without auditors and rarely without making converts to his opinions. On the present occasion, his native powers were stimulated by the thirst of revenge. He again recounted the events of the attack on the island at Glens, the death of his associates, and the escape of their most formidable enemies. Then he described the nature and position of the mount whither he had led such captives as had fallen into their hands of his own bloody intentions toward the maidens, and of his baffled malice he made no mention, but passed rapidly on to the surprise of the party by La Longue Carabine, and its fatal termination. Here he paused, and looked about him, in effected veneration of the departed, but in truth to note the effect of his opening narrative. As usual, every eye was riveted on his face. Each dusky figure seemed a breathing statue, so motionless was the posture, so intense the attention of the individual. 
Then Mokwa dropped his voice, which had hitherto been clear, strong, and elevated, and touched upon the merits of the dead. No quality that was likely to command the sympathy of an Indian escaped his notice. One had never been known to follow the chase in vain. Another had been indefatigable on the trail of their enemies. This was brave, that generous. In short, he so managed his illusions that in a nation which was composed of so few families, he contrived to strike every chord that might find in its turn some breast in which to vibrate. "'Are the bones of my young men,' he concluded, "'in the burial-place of the Hurons? "'You know that they are not. "'Their spirits are gone toward the setting sun, "'and are already crossing the great waters to the happy hunting-grounds. "'But they departed without food, without guns or knives, "'without moccasins, naked and poor as they were born. "'Shall this be?' Are their souls to enter the land of the just like hungry Iroquois or unmanly Delawares? Or shall they meet their friends with arms in their hands and robes on their backs? What will our fathers think the tribes of the Wyandots have become? They will look on their children with a dark eye and say, Go, a Chippewa has come hither with the name of a Huron. Brothers, we must not forget the dead. A redskin never ceases to remember. We will load the back of this Mohican until he staggers under our bounty and dispatch him after my young men. They call to us for aid. Though our ears are not open, they say, Forget us not. When they see the spirit of this Mohican toiling after them with his burden, they will know that we are of that mind. Then they will go on happy, and our children will say, So did our fathers to their friends. So must we do to them. What is a Yankee? We have slain many, but the earth is still pale. A stain on the name of a Huron can only be hid by blood that comes from the veins of an Indian. Let this Delaware die! The effect of such a harangue delivered in the nervous language, and with the emphatic manner of a Huron orator, could scarcely be mistaken. Maqua had so artfully blended the natural sympathies with the religious superstition of his auditors, that their minds, already prepared by custom to sacrifice a victim to the manes of their countrymen, lost every vestige of humanity in a wish for revenge. One warrior in particular, a man of wild and ferocious mien, had been conspicuous for the attention he had given to the words of the speaker. His countenance had changed with each passing emotion, until it settled on a look of deadly malice. As Mogwa ended, he arose, and uttering the yell of a demon, his polished little axe was seen glancing in the torchlight as he whirled it above his head. The motion and the cry were too sudden for words to interrupt his bloody intention. It appeared as if a bright gleam shot from his hand, which was crossed at the same moment by a dark and powerful line. The former was the tomahawk in its passage. The later the arm of Maqua darted forward to divert its aim. 
the quick and ready motion of the chief was not entirely too late. The keen weapon cut the war-plume of the scalping-tuft of Uncas, and passed through the frail wall of the lodge as though it were hurled from some formidable engine. Duncan had seen the threatening action, and sprung upon his feet with a heart which, while it leaped into its throat, swelled with the most generous resolution in behalf of his friend. A glance told him that the blow had failed, and terror changed to admiration. Uncas stood still, looking his enemy in the eye with features that seemed superior to emotion. Marble could not be colder, calmer, or steadier than the countenance he put upon this sudden and vindictive attack. Then, as if pitying a want of skill which had proved so fortunate to himself, he smiled and muttered a few words of contempt in his own tongue. No, said Maqua, after satisfying himself of the safety of the captive, the sun must shine on his shame. The squaws must see his flesh tremble, or our revenge will be like the play of boys. Go, take him where there is silence. Let us see if a Delaware can sleep at night, and in the morning die. The young men whose duty it was to guard the prisoner instantly passed their ligaments of bark across his arms, and led him from the lodge, amid a profound and ominous silence. It was only as the figure of Uncas stood in the opening of the door that his firm step hesitated. There he turned, and, in the sweeping and haughty glance that he threw around the circle of his enemies, Duncan caught a look which he was glad to construe into an expression that he was not entirely deserted by hope. Maqua was content with his success, or too much occupied with his secret purposes to push his inquiries any further. Shaking his mantle and folding it on his bosom, he also quitted the place without pursuing a subject which might have proved so fatal to the individual at his elbow. Notwithstanding his rising resentment, his natural firmness, and his anxiety on behalf of Uncas, Hayward felt sensibly relieved by the absence of so dangerous and subtle a foe. The excitement produced by the speech gradually subsided. The warriors resumed their seats, and clouds of smoke once more filled the lodge. For near half an hour not a syllable was uttered, or scarcely a look cast aside. A grave and meditative silence, being the ordinary succession to every scheme of violence and commotion among these beings, who were alike so impetuous, and yet so self-restrained. When the chief who had solicited the aid of Duncan finished his pipe, he made a final and successful movement toward the departing. A motion of a finger was the intimation he gave the supposed physician to follow, and, passing through the clouds of smoke, Duncan was glad, on more accounts than one, to be able at least to breathe the pure air of a cool and refreshing summer evening. Instead of pursuing his way among those lodges where Hayward had already made his unsuccessful search, his companion turned aside and proceeded directly toward the base of an adjacent mountain, which overhung the temporary village. A thicket of brush skirted its foot, and it became necessary to proceed through a crooked and narrow path. The boys had resumed their sports in the clearing, and were enacting the mimic chase to the posts among themselves. 
In order to render their games as like the reality as possible, one of the boldest of their number had conveyed a few brands into some piles of treetops that had hitherto escaped the burning. The blaze of one of these fires lighted the way of the chief and Duncan, and gave a character of additional wildness to the rude scenery. At a little distance from a bald rock, and directly in its front, they entered a grassy opening, which they prepared to cross. Just then fresh fuel was added to the fire, and a powerful light penetrated even to that distant spot. It fell upon the white surface of the mountain, and was reflected downward upon a dark and mysterious-looking being that arose unexpectedly in their path. The Indian paused as if doubtful whether to proceed, and permitted his companion to approach his side. A large black ball, which at first seemed stationary, now began to move in a manner that to the latter was inexplicable. Again the fire brightened, and its glare fell more distinctly on the object. Then even Duncan knew it by its restless and sidling attitudes, which kept the upper part of its form in constant motion, while the animal itself appeared seated to be a bear. Though it growled loudly and fiercely, and there were instants when its glistening eyeballs might be seen, it gave no other indications of hostility. The Huron, at least, seemed assured that the intentions of the singular intrudable were peaceable, for after giving it an attentive examination, he quietly pursued his course. Duncan, who knew that the animal was often domesticated among the Indians, followed the example of his companion, believing that some favorite of the tribe had found its way into the thicket in search of food. They passed it unmolested. Though obliged to come nearly in contact with the monster, the Huron, who had at first so warily determined the character of this strange visitor, was now content with proceeding without wasting a moment in further examination. But Hayward was unable to prevent his eyes from looking backward, in salutary watchfulness against attacks from the rear. His uneasiness was in no degree diminished when he perceived the beast rolling along their path and following their footsteps. He would have spoken, but the Indian at that moment shoved aside a door of bark and entered a cavern in the bosom of the mountain. Profiting by so easy a method of retreat, Duncan stepped after him, and was gladly closing the slight cover to the opening when he felt it drawn from his hand by the beast, whose shaggy form immediately darkened the passage. They were now in a straight and long gallery, in a chasm of the rocks, where retreat without encountering the animal was impossible. Making the best of the circumstances, the young man pressed forward, keeping as close as possible to his conductor. The bear growled, frequently at his heels, and once or twice its enormous paws were laid on his person, as if disposed to prevent his further passage into the den. How long the nerves of Hayward would have sustained him in this extraordinary situation, it might be difficult to decide, for happily he soon found relief. A glimmer of light had constantly been in their front, and they now arrived at the place whence it proceeded. A large cavity in the rock had been rudely fitted to answer the purposes of many apartments. These subdivisions were simple but ingenious, being composed of stone, sticks, and bark intermingled. 
openings above admitted the light by day, and at night fires and torches supplied the place of the sun. Hither the Hurons had brought most of their valuables, especially those which were more particularly pertained to the nation, and hither, as it now appeared, the sick woman, who was believed to be the victim of supernatural power, had been transported also, under an impression that her tormentor would find more difficulty in making his assaults through the walls of stone than through the leafy coverings of the lodges. The apartment into which Duncan and his guide first entered had been exclusively devoted to her accommodation. The latter approached her bedside, which was surrounded by females, in the center of whom Hayward was surprised to find his missing friend, David. A single look was sufficient to apprise the pretended leech that the invalid was far beyond his powers of healing. She lay in a sort of paralysis, indifferent to the objects which crowded before her sight, and happily unconscious of suffering. Hayward was far from regretting that his mummeries were to be performed on one who was much too ill to take an interest in their failure or success. The slight qualm of conscience, which had been excited by the intended deception, was instantly appeased, and he began to collect his thoughts in order to enact his part with suitable spirit, when he found that he was about to be anticipated in his skill by an attempt to prove the power of music. Gamut, who had stood prepared to pour forth his spirit and song when the visitors entered, after delaying a moment, drew a strain from his pipe, and commenced a hymn that might have worked a miracle, had faith in its efficacy been of much avail. He was allowed to proceed to the close, the Indians respecting his imaginary infirmity, and Duncan, too glad of the delay, to hazard the slightest interruption. As the dying cadence of his strains was falling on the ears of the latter, he started aside at hearing them repeated behind him, in a voice half-human and half-sepulchral. Looking around he beheld the shaggy monster, seated on end, in a shadow of the cavern, where, while his restless body swung in the uneasy manner of the animal, it repeated a sort of low growl sounds, if not words, which bore some slight resemblance to the melody of the singer. The effect of so strange an echo on David may be better imagined than described. His eyes opened as if he doubted their truth, and his voice became instantly mute in excess of wonder. A deep-laid scheme of communicating some important intelligence to Hayward was driven from his recollection by an emotion which very nearly resembled fear but which he was fain to believe was admiration. Under its influence he exclaimed aloud, She expects you and is at hand, and precipitately left the cavern. End of chapter 24 This reading by Gary W. Sherwin of Yukon, Pennsylvania, in the autumn of 2007Chapter 25 of The Last of the Mohicans, a narrative of 1757 by James Fenimore Cooper. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org.
Chapter 25 Quote, Snug Have you the lion's part written? Pray you, if it be, give it to me, for I am slow of study. Quincy You may do it extempore, for it is nothing but roaring. Unquote. From Midsummer Night's Dream There was a strange blending of the ridiculous with that which was solemn in this scene. The beast still continued its rolling, and apparently untiring movements, though its ludicrous attempt to imitate the melody of David ceased the instant the latter abandoned the field. The words of Gamut were, as has been seen in his native tongue, and to Duncan they seemed pregnant with some hidden meaning, though nothing present assisted him in discovering the object of their illusion. A speedy end was, however, put to every conjecture on the subject by the manner of the chief, who advanced to the bedside of the invalid, and beckoned away the whole group of female attendants that had clustered there to witness the skill of the stranger. He was implicitly, though reluctantly, obeyed, and when the low echo which rang along the hollow natural gallery from the distant closing door had ceased, pointing toward his insensible daughter, he said, Now let my brother show his power. Thus unequivocally called on to exercise the functions of his assumed character, Hayward was apprehensive that the smallest delay might prove dangerous. Endeavoring, then, to collect his ideas, he prepared to perform that species of incantation, and those uncouth rites, under which the Indian conjurers are accustomed to conceal their ignorance and impotency. It is more than probable that, in the disordered state of his thoughts, he would soon have fallen into some suspicious, if not fatal, error, had not his incipient attempts been interrupted by a fierce growl from the quadruped. Three several times did he renew his efforts to proceed, and as often was he met by the same unaccountable opposition, each interruption seeming more savage and threatening than the preceding. The cunning ones are jealous, said the Huron. I go. Brother, the woman is the wife of one of my bravest young men. Deal justly by her. Peace, he added, beckoning to the discontented beast to be quiet. I go. The chief was as good as his word, and Duncan now found himself alone in that wild and desolate abode with the helpless invalid and the fierce and dangerous brute. He listened to the movements of the Indian, with that air of sagacity that a bear is known to possess, until another echo announced that he had also left the cavern. When it turned and came waddling up to Duncan, before whom it seated himself in its natural attitude, erect like a man, the youth looked anxiously about him for some weapon with which he might make a resistance against the attack he now seriously expected. It seemed, however, as the humor of the animal had suddenly changed. Instead of continuing its discontented growls, or manifesting any further signs of anger, the whole of its shaggy body shook violently, as if agitated by some strange internal convulsion. The huge and unwieldy talons pawed stupidly about the grinning muzzle, and while Hayward kept his eyes riveted on its movements with jealous watchfulness, 
the grim head fell on one side, and in its place appeared the honest, sturdy countenance of the scout, who was indulging from the bottom of his soul in his own peculiar expression of merriment. Hist, said the weary woodsman, interrupting Hayward's exclamation of surprise. The varlets are about the place, and any sounds that are not natural to witchcraft would bring them back upon us in a body. Tell me the meaning of this masquerade, and why you have attempted so desperate an adventure. Ah, reason and calculation are often outdone by accident, returned the scout. But as a story should always commence from the beginning, I will tell you the whole in order. After we departed, I placed the commandant and the sagamore in an old beaver lodge, where they are safer from the Hurons than they would be in the garrison of Edward. For your high north-west Indians, not having as yet got the traders among them, continued to venerate the beaver. After which Uncas and I pushed for the other encampment, as was agreed. Have you seen the lad? To my great grief. He is captive, and condemned to die at the rising of the sun. I had misgivings that such would be his fate, resumed the scout, in a less confident and joyous tone. But soon regaining his naturally firm voice, he continued, His bad fortune is the true reason for my being here for it would never do to abandon such a boy to the Hurons. A rare time the knaves would have it, could they tie the bounding elk and the long carabine, as they call me, to the same stake. Though why they have given me such a name I never knew, there being as little likeness between the gifts of Kildeer and the performance of one of your real Canada carabines as there is between the nature of a pipe-stone and a flint. Keep to your tail, said the impatient Hayward. We know not at what moment the Hurons may return. No fear of them. A conjurer must have his time, like a straggling priest in the settlements. We are as safe from interruption as a missionary would be at the beginning of a two-hours discourse. Well, Uncas and I fell in with a return party of the varlets. The lad was much too forward for a scout. Nay, for that matter, being of hot blood, he was not so much to blame, and after all, one of the Hurons proved a coward, and in fleeing led him into an ambushment. And dearly has he paid for the weakness. The scout significantly passed his hand across his own throat, and nodded, as if he said, I comprehend your meaning, after which he continued in a more audible, though scarcely more intelligible language. After the loss of the boy, I turned upon the Hurons, as you may judge. There have been scrimmages between one or two of their outliers and myself. But that is neither here nor there. So after I had shot the imps, I got pretty nigh to the lodges without further commotion. Then what should luck do in my favor but lead me to the very spot where one of the most famous conjurers of the tribe was dressing himself, as I well knew, for some great battle with Satan. Though, why should I call that luck, which it now seems was an especial ordering of providence? So a judgmatical rap over the head stiffened the lying impostor for a time, and leaving him a bit of walnut for his super, to prevent an uproar, and stringing him up between two samplings, 
I made free with his finery, and took the part of the bear on myself, in order that the operations might proceed. And admirably did you enact the character. The animal itself might have been shamed by the representation. Lord Major, returned the flattered woodsman, I should be but a poor scholar for one who has studied so long in the wilderness, did I not know how to set forth the movements or nature of such a beast. Had it been now a catamount, or even a full-sized panther, I would have embellished a performance for you worth regarding. But it is no such marvelous feat to exhibit the feats of so dull a beast. Though for that matter, too, a bear may be overacted. Yes, yes, it is not every imitator that knows nature may be outdone easier than she is equaled. But all our work is yet before us. Where is the gentle one? Heaven knows. I have examined every lodge in the village without discovering the slightest trace of her presence in the tribe. You heard what the singer said as he left us. She is at hand and expects you? I have been compelled to believe he alluded to this unhappy woman. The simpleton was frightened and blundered through his message, but he had a deeper meaning. Here are walls enough to separate the whole settlement. A bear ought to climb, therefore I will take a look above them. There may be honey-pots hid in these rocks, and I am a beast, you know, that has a hankering for the sweets. The scout looked behind him, laughing at his own conceit, while he clambered up the partition, imitating as he went the clumsy motions of the beast he represented. But the instant the summit was gained, he made a gesture of silence, and slid down with the utmost precipitation. She is here, he whispered, and by that door you will find her. I would have spoken a word of comfort to the afflicted soul, but the sight of such a monster might upset her reason. Though for that matter, Major, you are none of the most inviting yourself in your paint. Duncan, who had already swung eagerly forward, drew instantly back on hearing these discouraging words. Am I then so very revolting? He demanded with an air of chagrin. You might not startle a wolf or turn the Royal Americans from a discharge, but I have seen the time when you had better favored look. Your street countenances are not ill-judged of by the squaws, but young women of white blood give the preference to their own color. See, he added, pointing to a place where the water trickled from a rock forming a little crystal spring before it found an issue through the adjacent crevices. You may easily get rid of the Sagamore's daub, and when you come back, I will try my hand at a new embellishment. It's as common for a conjurer to alter his paint as for a buck in the settlements to change his finery. The deliberate woodsman had little occasion to hunt for arguments to enforce his advice. He was yet speaking when Duncan availed himself of the water. In a moment every frightful or offensive mark was obliterated, and the youth appeared again in the lineaments with which he had been gifted by nature. Thus prepared for an interview with his mistress, he took a hasty leave of his companion and disappeared through the indicated passage. The scout witnessed his departure with complacency. 
nodding his head after him, and muttering his good wishes, after which he very coolly set about an examination of the state of the latter. Among the Hurons, the cavern, among other purposes, being used as a receptacle for the fruits of their hunts. Duncan had no other guide than a distant glimmering light, which served, however, the office of a polar star to the lover. By its aid he was enabled to enter the haven of his hopes, which was merely another apartment of the cavern that had been solely appropriated to the safe-keeping of so important a prisoner as the daughter of the Commandant of William Henry. It was profusely strewed with the plunder of that unlucky fortress. In the midst of this confusion he found her he sought, pale, anxious, and terrified, but lovely. David had prepared her for such a visit. "'Duncan!' she exclaimed, in a voice that seemed to tremble at the sounds created by itself. "'Alice!' he answered leaping carelessly among trunks, boxes, arms, and furniture, until he stood at her side. "'I knew you would never desert me,' she said, looking up with a momentary glow on her otherwise dejected countenance. "'But you are alone. Grateful as it is to be thus remembered, I could wish to think you are not entirely alone.' Duncan observing that she trembled in a manner which betrayed her inability to stand, gently induced her to be seated, while he recounted those leading incidents which it has been our task to accord. Alice listened with breathless interest, and though the young man touched lightly on the sorrows of the stricken father, taking care, however, not to wound the self-love of his auditor, the tears ran as freely down the cheeks of the daughter as though she had never wept before. The soothing tenderness of Duncan, however, soon quieted the first burst of her emotions, and she then heard him to the close with undivided attention, if not with composure. "'And now, Alice,' he added, "'you will see how much is still expected of you, by the assistance of our experienced and invaluable friend, the Scout. We may find our way from this savage people.' but you will have to exert your utmost fortitude. Remember that you fly to the arms of your venerable parent, and how much his happiness, as well as your own, depends on these exertions. Can I do otherwise for a father who has done so much for me? And for me, too, continued the youth, gently pressing the hand he held in both his own. The look of innocence and surprise which he received in return convinced Duncan of the necessity of being more explicit. This is neither the place nor the occasion to detain you with selfish wishes, he added. But what heart loaded like mine would not wish to cast its burden? They say misery is the closest of all ties. Our common suffering in your behalf left but little to be explained between your father and myself. And, dearest Cora, Duncan, surely Cora was not forgotten? Not forgotten, no, regretted, as woman was seldom mourned before. Your venerable father knew no difference between his children. But I... Alice, 
you will not be offended when I say that to me her worth was in a degree obscured. Then you knew not the merit of my sister, said Alice, withdrawing her hand. Of you she ever speaks, as one who is her dearest friend. I would gladly believe her such, returned Duncan hastily. I could wish her to be even more. But with you, Alice, I have the permission of your father to aspire to a still nearer and dearer tie. Alice trembled violently, and there was an instant during which she bent her face aside, yielding to the emotions common to her sex. But they quickly passed away, leaving her mistress of her deportment, if not of her affections. Hayward, she said, looking him full in the face, with a touching expression of innocence and dependency, give me the sacred presence and the holy sanction of that parent before you urge me further. The more I should not, lest I could not say, the youth was about to answer, when he was interrupted by a light tap on his shoulder. Starting to his feet, he turned, and confronting the intruder, his looks fell on the dark form and the malignant visage of Magua. The deep guttural laugh of the savage sounded at such a moment to Duncan like the hellish taunt of a demon. Had he pursued the sudden and fierce impulse of the instant, he would have cast himself on the Huron and committed their fortunes to the issue of a deadly struggle. But without arms of any description, ignorant of what succor his subtle enemy could command, and charged with the safety of one who was just then dearer than ever to his heart, he no sooner entertained than he abandoned the desperate intention. "'What is your purpose?' said Alice, meekly folding her arms on her bosom, and struggling to conceal an agony of apprehension in behalf of Hayward, in the usual cold and distant manner with which she received the visits of her captor. The exulting Indian had resumed his austere countenance, though he drew wearily back from the menacing glance of the young man's fiery eye. He regarded both his captives for a moment with a steady look, and then, stepping aside, he dropped a log of wood across a door different from that by which Duncan had entered. The latter now comprehended the manner of his surprise, and believing him irretrievably lost, he drew Alice to his bosom, and stood prepared to meet a fate which he hardly regretted, since it was suffered in such company. But Maqua meditated no immediate violence. His first measures were very evidently taken to secure his new captive, nor did he even bestow a second glance at the motionless forms at the center of the cavern, until he had completely cut off every hope of retreat through the private outlet he had himself used. He was watched in all his movements by Hayward, who, however, remained firm, still folding the fragile form of Alice to his heart, at once too proud and too hopeless to ask favor of an enemy so often foiled. When Magua had effected his object, he approached his prisoners and said in English, The pale faces trap the cunning beavers, but the redskins know how to take the Yankees. You're on, do your worst, exclaimed the excited Hayward, forgetful that a double stake was involved in his life. 
you and your vengeance are alike despised. Will the white men speak these words at the stake? asked Magua, manifesting at the same time how little faith he had in the other's resolution by the sneer that accompanied his words. Here, singly in your face, or in the presence of your nation. Le Renard Subtil is a great chief, returned the Indian. He will go and bring his young men to see how bravely a pale-face can laugh at tortures. He turned away while speaking, and was about to leave the place through the avenue by which Duncan had approached, when a growl caught his ear, and caused him to hesitate. The figure of the bear appeared in the door, where it sat rolling from side to side, in its customary restlessness. Magua, like the father of the sick woman, eyed it keenly for a moment, as if to ascertain its character. He was far above the more vulgar superstitions of his tribe, and, so soon as he recognized the well-known attire of the conjurer, he prepared to pass it in cool contempt. But a louder and more threatening growl caused him again to pause. Then he seemed as if suddenly resolved to trifle no longer, and moved resolutely forward. The mimic animal, which had advanced a little, retired slowly in his front, until it arrived again at the pass, when, rearing on its hinder legs, it beat the air with its paws, in the manner practiced by its brutal prototype. "'Fool!' exclaimed the chief in Huron. "'Go play with the children and squaws. Leave men to their wisdom.' He once more endeavored to pass the supposed empiric, scorning even the parade of threatening to use the knife or tomahawk that was pendant from his belt. Suddenly the beast extended its arms, or rather legs, and enclosed him in a grasp that would have vied with far-famed power of the bear's hug itself. Hayward had watched the whole procedure on the part of Hawkeye with breathless interest. At first he relinquished his hold on Alice. Then he caught up a thong of buckskin which had been used around some bundle, and when he beheld his enemy about his two arms pinned to his side by the iron muscles of the scout, he rushed upon him and effectually secured them there. Arms, legs, and feet were encircled in twenty folds of the thong in less time than we have taken to record the circumstance. When the formidable Huron was completely pinioned, the scout released his hold, and Duncan laid his enemy on his back, utterly helpless. Throughout the whole of this sudden and extraordinary operation, Maqua, though he had struggled violently, until assured he was in the hands of one whose nerves were far better strung than his own, had not uttered the slightest exclamation. But when Hawkeye, by way of making a summary explanation of his conduct, removed the shaggy jaws of the beast, and exposed his own rugged and earnest countenance to the gaze of the Huron, the philosophy of the latter was so far mastered as to permit him to utter the never-failing. Hug! Ay, you found your tongue, said his undisturbed conqueror. Now, in order that you shall not use it to our ruin, I must make free to stop your mouth. And there was no time to be lost. The scout immediately set about effecting so necessary a precaution, and when he had gagged the Indian, his enemy might safely have been considered as 
Urs de Combat. By what place did the imp enter? asked the industrious scout, when his work was ended. Not a soul has passed my way since you left me. Duncan pointed out the door by which Maqua had come, and which now presented too many obstacles for a quick retreat. Bring on the gentle one, then continued his friend. We must make a push for the woods by the other outlet. Tis impossible, said Duncan. Fear has overcome her, and she is helpless. Alice, my sweet, my own Alice, arouse yourself. Now is the moment to fly. Tis in vain. She hears, but is unable to follow. Go, noble and worthy friend. Save yourself, and leave me to my fate. Every trail has its end, and every calamity brings its lesson, returned the scout. There, wrap her in them Indian cloths. Conceal all of her little form. Nay, that foot has no fellow in the wilderness. It will betray her. All, every part. Now take her in your arms and follow. Leave the rest to me. Duncan, as may be gathered from the words of his companion, was eagerly obeying, and as the other finished speaking, he took the light person of Alice in his arms and followed in the footsteps of the scout. They found the sick woman, as they had left her, still alone, and passed swiftly on by the natural gallery to the place of entrance. As they approached the little door of bark, a murmur of voices without announced that the friends and relatives of the invalid were gathered about the place, patiently awaiting a summons to re-enter. "'If I open my lips to speak,' Hawkeye whispered, my English, which is the genuine tongue of a white skin, will tell the varlets that an enemy is among them. You must give them your jargon, Major, and say that we have shut the evil spirit in the cave, and we are taking the woman to the woods in order to find strengthening roots. Practice all your cunning, for it is a lawful undertaking. The door opened a little as if one without was listening to the proceedings within, and compelled the scout to cease his directions. A fierce growl repelled the eavesdropper, and then the scout boldly threw open the covering of bark and left the place, enacting the character of a bear as he proceeded. Duncan kept close at his heels, and soon found himself in the center of a cluster of twenty anxious relatives and friends. The crowd fell back a little, and permitted the father and one who appeared to be the husband of the woman to approach. "'Has it, my brother, driven away the evil spirit?' demanded the former. "'What has he in his arms?' "'Thy child,' returned Duncan gravely. "'The disease has gone out of her. It is shut up in the rocks. I take the woman to a distance, where I will strengthen her against any further attacks. She will be in the wigwam of the young man.' when the sun comes again. When the father had translated the meaning of the stranger's words into the Huron language, a suppressed murmur announced the satisfaction with which this intelligence was received. The chief himself waved his hand for Duncan to proceed, saying aloud in a firm voice and with a lofty manner, Go, I am a man, and I will enter the rock and fight the wicked one. Hayward gladly obeyed and was already past the little group when those startling words arrested him. 
"'Is my brother mad?' he exclaimed. "'Is he cruel? "'He will meet the disease and it will enter him, "'or he will drive out the disease "'and it will chase his daughter into the woods. "'No, let my children wait without, "'and if the spirit appears, "'beat him down with clubs. "'He is cunning and will bury himself in the mountain "'when he sees how many are ready to fight him.' This singular warning had the desired effect. Instead of entering the cavern, the father and the husband drew their tomahawks and posted themselves in readiness to deal their vengeance on the imaginary tormentor of their sick relative, while the woman and children broke branches from the bushes or seized fragments of the rock with a similar intention. At this favorable moment, the counterfeit conjurers disappeared. Hawkeye, at the same time that he had presumed so far in the nature of the Indian superstitions, was not ignorant that they were rather tolerated than relied on by the wisest of the chiefs. He well knew the value of time in the present emergency. Whatever might be the extent of the self-delusion of his enemies, and however it had tended to assist his schemes, the slightest cause of suspicion, acting on the subtle nature of an Indian, would be likely to prove fatal. Taking the path, therefore, that was most likely to avoid observation, he rather skirted than entered the village. The warriors were still to be seen in the distance, by the fading light of the fires, stalking from lodge to lodge. But the children had abandoned their sports for their beds of skins, and the quiet of night was already beginning to prevail over the turbulence and excitement of so busy and important an evening. Alice revived under the renovating influence of the open air, and as her physical rather than her mental powers had been the subject of weakness, she stood in no need of any explanation of that which had occurred. "'Now let me make an effort to walk,' she said, as they had entered the forest, blushing, though unseen, that she had not been sooner able to quit the arms of Duncan. I am indeed restored. Nay, Alice, you are yet too weak. The maiden struggled gently to release herself, and Hayward was compelled to part with his precious burden. The representative of the bear had certainly been an entire stranger to the delicious emotions of the lover, while his arms encircled his mistress, and he was perhaps a stranger also to the nature of that feeling of ingenuous shame that oppressed the trembling Alice. But when he found himself at a suitable distance from the lodges, he made a halt, and spoke on a subject of which he was thoroughly the master. This path will lead you to the brook, he said. Follow its northern bank until you come to a fall. Mount the hill on your right, and you will see the fires of the other people. There you must go and demand protection. If they are true Delawares, you will be safe. A distant flight with that gentleman, just now, is impossible. The Hurons would follow up our trail and master our scalps before we got a dozen miles. Go, and Providence be with you. And you? demanded Hayward in surprise. Surely we not part here. The Hurons hold the pride of the Delawares. The last of the high blood of the Mohicans in their power, returned the scout. I go to see what can be done in his favor. 
had they mastered your scout major and knaves should have fallen for every hair it held as i promised but if the young sagamore is to be led to the stake the indians shall also see how a man without a cross can die not in the least offended with the decided preference that the sturdy woodsman gave to one who might in some degree be called the child of his adoption duncan still continued to urge such reasons against so desperate an effort as presented themselves he was aided by alice who mingled her entreaties with those of hayward that he would abandon a resolution that promised so much danger with so little hope of success their eloquence and ingenuity were expended in vain the scout heard them attentively but impatiently and finally closed the discussion by answering in a tone that instantly silenced alice while it told hayward how fruitless any further remonstrances would be i have heard he said that there is a feeling in youth which binds man to a woman closer than father is tied to the son it may be so i have seldom been where women of my color dwell but such may be the gifts of nature in the settlements you have risked life and all that is dear to you to bring off this gentle one and i suppose that some such disposition is at the bottom of it all as for me i taught the lad the real character of a rifle and well has he paid me for it i fought at his side in many a bloody scrimmage and so long as i could hear the crack of his piece in one ear and that of the sagamore in the other i knew no enemy was on my back winters and summer nights and days we have roved the wilderness in company eating of the same dish one sleeping while the other watched and afore it shall be said that uncas was taken to the torment and i at hand there is but a single ruler of us all whatever may the color of the skin and him i call to witness that before the mohican boy shall perish for the want of a friend good faith shall depart the earth and killdeer become as harmless as the tooting weapon of the singer duncan released his hold on the arm of the scout who turned and steadily retraced his steps toward the lodges after pausing a moment to gaze at his retiring form the successful and yet sorrowful hayward and alice took their way together toward the distant village of the delawares end of chapter twenty five this reading by gary w sherwin of yukon pennsylvania in the autumn of two thousand seven chapter twenty six of the last of the mohicans a narrative of seventeen fifty seven by james fenimore cooper this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox dot org chapter twenty six quote bought let me play the lion too unquote. from midsummer night's dream notwithstanding the high resolution of hawkeye he fully comprehended all the difficulties and danger he was about to incur in his return to the camp 
his acute and practised intellects were intently engaged in devising means to counteract the watchfulness and suspicion on the part of his enemies that he knew were in no degree inferior to his own nothing but the color of his skin had saved the lives of magua and the conjurer who would have been the first victims sacrificed to his own security had not the scout believed such an act however congenial it might be to the nature of an indian utterly unworthy of one who boasted a descent from men who knew no cross of blood accordingly he trusted to the withes and ligaments with which he had bound his captives and pursued his way directly toward the center of the lodges as he approached the buildings his steps become more deliberate and his vigilant eye suffered no sign whether friendly or hostile to escape him a neglected hut was a little in advance of the others and appeared as if it had been deserted when half completed most probably on account of failing in some of the more important requisites such as wood or water a faint light glimmered through its cracks however and announced that notwithstanding its imperfect structure it was not without a tenant thither then the scout proceeded like a prudent general who was about to feel the advanced positions of his enemy before he hazarded the main attack throwing himself into a suitable posture for the beast he represented hawkeye crawled to a little opening where he might command a view of the interior it proved to be the abiding place of david gamut hither the faithful singing master had now brought himself together with all his sorrows his apprehensions and his meek dependence on the protection of providence at the precise moment when his ungainly person came under the observation of the scout in the manner just mentioned the woodsman himself though in his assumed character was the subject of the solitary being's profounded reflections however implicit the faith of david was in the performance of ancient miracles he eschewed the belief of any direct supernatural agency in the management of modern morality in other words while he had implicit faith in the ability of balaam's ass to speak he was somewhat skeptical on the subject of a bear's singing and yet he had been assured of the latter on the testimony of his own exquisite organs there was something in his air and manner that betrayed to the scalp the utter confusion of the state of his mind he was seated on a pile of brush a few twigs from which occasionally fed his low fire with his head leaning on his arm in a posture of melancholy musing the costume of the votary of music had undergone no other alteration from that so lately described except that he had covered his bald head with the triangular beaver which had not proved sufficiently alluring to excite the cupidity of any of his captors the ingenious hawkeye who recalled the hasty manner in which the other had abandoned his post at the bedside of the sick woman was not without his suspicions concerning the subject of so much solemn deliberation first making the circuit of the hut and ascertaining that it stood quite alone and that the character of his inmate was likely to protect it from visitors he ventured through its low door into the very presence of gamut the position of the latter brought the fire between them and when hawkeye had seated himself on end 
near a minute lapsed, during which the two remained regarding each other without speaking. The suddenness and the nature of the surprise had nearly proved too much for, we will not say the philosophy, but for the pitch and resolution of David. He fumbled for his pitch-pipe, and arose with a confused intention of attempting a musical exorcism. "'Dark and mysterious monster!' he exclaimed, while with trembling hands he disposed of his auxiliary eyes and sought his never-failing resource in trouble, the gifted version of the Psalms. "'I know not your nature nor intents, but if aught you meditate against the person and rights of one of the humblest servants of the temple, listen to the inspired language of the youth of Israel, and repent.' The bear shook his saggy sides, and then a well-known voice replied, Put up the tooting weapon and teach your throat modesty. Five words of plain and comprehensible English are worth just now an hour of squalling. What art thou? demanded David, utterly disqualified to pursue his original intention and nearly gasping for breath. A man like yourself, and one whose blood is as little tainted by the cross of a bear or an Indian as your own. Have you so soon forgotten from whom you received the foolish instrument you hold in your hand? Can these things be? returned David, breathing more freely as the truth began to dawn upon him. I have found many marvels during my sojourn with the heathen, but surely nothing to excel this come come returned hawkeye uncasing his honest countenance the better to assure the wavering confidence of his companion you may see a skin which if it be not as white as one of the gentle ones has no tinge of red to it that the winds of heaven and sun have not bestowed now let us to business first tell me of the maiden and of the youth who so bravely sought her interrupted David. Aye, they are happily freed from the tomahawks of these varlets. But can you put me on the scent of Uncas? The young man is in bondage, and much I fear his death is decreed. I greatly mourn that one so well disposed should die in his ignorance, and I have sought a goodly hymn. Can you lead me to him? The task will not be difficult, returned David, hesitating though I greatly fear your presence would rather increase than mitigate his unhappy fortunes. No more words, but lead on, returned Hawkeye, concealing his face again and setting the example in his own person by instantly quitting the lodge. As they proceeded, the scout ascertained that his companion found access to Uncas under privilege of his imaginary infirmity, aided by the favor he had acquired with one of the guards, who, in consequence of speaking a little English, had been selected by David as the subject of a religious conversion. How far the Huron comprehended the intentions of his new friend may well be doubted, but as exclusive attention is as flattering to a savage as a more civilized individual, it had produced the effect we have mentioned. It is unnecessary to repeat the shrewd manner with which the scout extracted these particulars from the simple David. 
neither shall we dwell in this place on the nature of the instruction he delivered, when completely master of all the necessary facts, as the whole will be sufficiently explained to the reader in the course of the narrative. The lodge in which Uncas was confined was in the very centre of the village, and in a situation, perhaps, more difficult than any other to approach or leave without observation. But it was not the policy of Hawkeye to effect the least concealment. Presuming on his disguise and his ability to sustain the character he had assumed, he took the most plain and direct route to the place. The hour, however, afforded him some little of that protection which he appeared so much to despise. The boys were already buried in sleep, and all the women, and most of the warriors, had retired to their lodges for the night. Four or five of the latter only lingered about the door of the prison of Uncas, wary but close observers of the manner of their captive. At the sight of Gamut, accompanied by one in the well-known masquerade of their most distinguished conjurer, they readily made way for them both. Still, they betrayed no intention to depart. On the other hand, they were evidently disposed to remain bound to the place by an additional interest in the mysterious mummeries that they of course expected from such a visit. From the total inability of the scout to address the Hurons in their own language, he was compelled to trust the conversation entirely to David. Notwithstanding the simplicity of the latter, he did ample justice to the instructions he had received, more than fulfilling the strongest hopes of his teacher. "'The Delawares are women!' he exclaimed, addressing himself to the savage, who had a slight understanding of the language in which he spoke. "'The Yangees, my foolish countrymen, have told them to take up the tomahawk and strike their fathers in the Canadas, and they have forgotten their sex.' Does my brother wish to hear the serf Agil ask for his petticoats, and see him weep before the Hurons at the stake? The exclamation, huh, delivered in a strong tone of assent, announced the gratification the savage would receive in witnessing such an exhibition of weakness in an enemy so long hated and so much feared. Then let him step aside, and the cunning man will blow upon the dog. Tell it to my brothers. The Huron explained the meaning of David to his fellows, who in their turn listened to the project with that sort of satisfaction that their untamed spirits might be expected to find in such a refinement in cruelty. They drew back a little from the entrance and motioned to the supposed conjurer to enter, but the bear, instead of obeying, maintained the seat it had taken and growled. The cunning man is afraid that his breath will blow upon his brothers, and take away their courage too, continued David, improving the hint he received. They must stand further off. The Hurons, who would have deemed such a misfortune the heaviest calamity that could befall them, fell back in a body, taking a position where they were out of earshot, though at the same time they could command a view of the entrance to the lodge. Then, as if satisfied of their safety, the scout left his position and slowly entered the place. It was silent and gloomy, being tenanted solely by the captive and lighted by the dying embers of fire, which had been used for the purpose of cookery. 
Uncas occupied a distant corner, in a reclining attitude, being rigidly bound both hands and feet by strong and painful wives. When the frightful object first presented itself to the young Mohican, he did not deign to bestow a single glance on the animal. The scout, who had left David at the door to ascertain they were not observed, thought it prudent to preserve his disguise until assured of their privacy. Instead of speaking, therefore, he exerted himself to enact one of the antics of the animal he represented. The young Mohican, who at first believed his enemies had sent in a real beast to torment him and try his nerves, detected in those performances that to Hayward had appeared so accurate certain blemishes that at once betrayed the counterfeit. Had Hawkeye been aware of the low estimation in which the skillful Uncas held his representation, he would probably have prolonged the entertainment a little in pique. But the scornful expression of the young man's eye admitted of so many constructions that the worthy scout was spared the mortification of such a discovery. As soon, therefore, as David gave the preconcerted signal, a low hissing sound was heard in the lodge, in place of the fierce growlings of the bear. Uncas had cast his body back against the wall of the hut, and closed his eyes, as if willing to exclude so contemptible and disagreeable an object from his sight. But the moment the noise of the serpent was heard, he arose and cast his looks on each side of him, bending his head low, and turning it inquiringly in every direction, until his keen eye rested on the shaggy monster, where it remained riveted, as though fixed by the power of a charm. Again the same sounds were repeated, evidently proceeding from the mouth of the beast. Once more the eyes of the youth roamed over the interior of the lodge, and returning to the former resting-place he uttered, in a deep, suppressed voice, Hawkeye! Cut his bands, said Hawkeye to David, who just then approached them. The singer did as he was ordered, and Uncas found his limbs released. At the same moment the dried skin of the animal rattled, and presently the scout arose to his feet in proper person. The Mohican appeared to comprehend the nature of the attempt his friend had made, intuitively neither tongue nor feature betraying another symptom of surprise. When Hawkeye had cast his shaggy vestment, which was done by simply loosing certain thongs of skin, he drew a long glittering knife and put it in the hands of Uncas. The red Hurons are without, he said. Let us be ready. At the same time he laid his finger significantly on another similar weapon, both being fruits of his prowess among their enemies during the evening. We will go, said Uncas. Whither? To the tortoises. They are the children of my grandfathers. Hi, lad, said the scout in English, a language he was apt to use when a little abstracted in mind. The same blood runs in your veins, I believe, but time and distance has a little changed its color. What shall we do with the mingos at the door? They count six, and this singer is as good as nothing. The Hurons are boasters, said Uncas scornfully. Their totem is a moose, and they run like snails. 
the Delawares are children of the tortoise, and they outstrip the deer. Ay, lad, there is truth in what you say, and I doubt not, on a rush, you would pass the whole nation, and, in a straight race of two miles, would be in and get your breath again, afore a knave of them all was within hearing of the other village. But the gift of a white man lies more in his arms than in his legs. As for myself, I can brain a Huron as well as a better man, but when it comes to a race, the knaves would prove too much for me. Uncas, who had already approached the door in readiness to lead the way, now recoiled and placed himself once more in the bottom of the lodge. But Hawkeye, who was too much occupied with his own thoughts to note the movement, continued speaking more to himself than to his companion. After all, he said, it is unreasonable to keep one man in bondage to the gifts of another. So, Uncas, you had better take the lead while I will put on the skin again, and trust to cunning for one of speed. The young Mohican made no reply, but quietly folded his arms and leaned his body against one of the upright posts that supported the wall of the hut. Well, said the scout looking at him, why do you tarry? There will be time enough for me, as the knaves will give chase to you at first. Uncas will stay, was the calm reply. For what? To fight with his father's brother, and die with the friend of the Delawares. Aye, lad, returned Hawkeye, squeezing the hand of Uncas between his own iron fingers. T'would have been more like a Mingo than a Mohican had you left me. But I thought I would make the offer, seeing that youth commonly loves life. Well, what can't be done by main courage in war must be done by circumvention. Put on the skin. I doubt not you can play the bear nearly as well as myself. Whatever might have been the private opinion of Uncas of their respective abilities in this particular, his grave countenance manifested no opinion of his superiority. He silently and expeditiously encased himself in the covering of the beast, and then awaited such other movements as his more aged companion saw fit to dictate. Now, friend, said Hawkeye, addressing David, an exchange of garments will be a great convenience to you, inasmuch as you are but little accustomed to the makeshifts of the wilderness. Here, take my hunting shirt and cap, and give me your blanket and hat. You must trust me with the book and the spectacles as well as the tutor, too. If we ever meet again in better times, you shall have all back again, with many thanks, into the bargain. David parted with the several articles named with a readiness that would have done great credit to his liberality, had he not certainly profited in many particulars by the exchange. Hawkeye was not long assuming his borrowed garments, and when his restless eyes were hid behind the glasses, and his head was surmounted by the triangular beaver, as their statures were not dissimilar, he might readily have passed for the singer by starlight. As soon as these dispositions were made, the scout turned to David, and gave him his parting instructions. "'Are you much given to cowardice?' he bluntly asked, by way of obtaining a suitable understanding of the whole case, before he ventured a prescription. "'My pursuits 
are peaceful, and my temper, I humbly trust, is greatly given to mercy and love, returned David, a little nettled at so direct an attack on his manhood. But there are none who can say that I have ever forgotten my faith in the Lord, even in the greatest straits. Your chiefest danger will be at the moment when the savages find out they have been deceived. If you are not then knocked on the head, your being a non-composer will protect you, and you'll then have a good reason to expect to die in your bed. If you stay, it must be to sit down here in the shadow and take the part of Uncas, until such time as the cunning of the Indians discover the cheat, when, as I have already said, your times of trial will come. So choose for yourself, to make a rush, or tarry here. Even so, said David firmly, I will abide in the place of the Delaware. Bravely and generously has he battled in my behalf, and this and more will I dare in his service. You have spoken as a man, and like one who, under wiser schooling, would have been brought to better things. Hold your head down, and draw in your legs. Their formation might tell the truth too early. Keep silent as long as may be, and it would be wise when you do speak to break suddenly in one of your shoutings, which will serve to remind the Indians that you are not altogether as responsible as men should be. If, however, they take your scalp, as I trust and believe they will not, depend on it. Uncas and I will not forget the deed, but revenge it, as becomes true warriors and trusty friends. Hold, said David, perceiving that with this assurance they were about to leave him. I am an unworthy and humble follower of one who taught not the damnable principle of revenge. Should I fall, therefore, seek no victims to my manes, but rather forgive my destroyers. And if you remember them at all, let it be in prayers for the enlightening of their minds and for their eternal welfare. The scout hesitated and appeared to muse. There is a principle in that, he said, different from the law of the woods, and yet it is fair and noble to reflect upon. Then heaving a heavy sigh, probably among the last he ever drew in pining for a condition he had so long abandoned, he added, It is what I would wish to practice myself, as one without a cross of blood, though it is not always easy to deal with an Indian as you would with a fellow Christian. God bless you, friend. I do believe your scent is not greatly wrong when the matter is duly considered. And keeping eternity before the eyes, though much depends on the natural gifts and the force of temptation. So saying, the scout returned and shook David cordially by the hand. After which act of friendship, he immediately left the lodge, attended by the new representative of the beast. The instant Hawkeye found himself under the observation of the Hurons, he drew up his tall form in the rigid manner of David, threw out his arm in the act of keeping tune, 
and commenced what he intended for an imitation of his psalmody. Happily for the success of this delicate adventure, he had to deal with ears but little practiced in the concord of sweet sounds, or the miserable effort would infallibly have been detected. It was necessary to pass within dangerous proximity of the dark group of the savages, and the voice of the scout grew louder as they drew nigher. When at the nearest point the Huron who spake the English thrust out an arm and stopped the supposed singing master. "'The Delaware dog!' he said, leaning forward and peering through the dim light to catch the expression of the other's features. "'Is he afraid? Will the Hurons hear his groans?' A growl so exceedingly fierce and natural proceeded from the beast that the young Indian released his hold and started aside, as if to assure himself that it was not a veritable bear and no counterfeit that was rolling before him. Hawkeye, who feared his voice would betray him to his subtle enemies, gladly profited by the interruption to break out anew in such a burst of musical expression as would probably, in a more refined state of society, been termed a grand crash. Among his actual auditors, however, it merely gave him an additional claim to that respect which they never withhold from such as are believed to be the subject of mental alienation. The little knot of Indians drew back in a body, and suffered as they thought the conjurer and his inspired assistant to proceed. It required no common exercise of fortitude in Uncas and the scout to continue the dignified and deliberate pace they had assumed in passing the lodge, especially as they immediately perceived that curiosity had so far mastered fear as to induce the watchers to approach the hut in order to witness the effect of the incantations. The least injudicious or impatient movement on the part of David might betray them, and time was absolutely necessary to ensure the safety of the scout. The loud noise of the latter, conceived it politic to continue, drew many curious gazers to the doors of the different huts as they passed, and once or twice a dark-looking warrior stepped across their path, led to the act by superstition and watchfulness. They were not, however, interrupted, the darkness of the hour and the boldness of the attempt proving their principal friends. The adventurers had got clear of the village, and were now swiftly approaching the shelter of the woods, when a loud and long cry arose from the lodge where Uncas had been confined. The Mohican started on his feet and shook his shaggy covering, as though the animal he counterfeited was about to make some desperate effort. "'Hold!' said the scout, grasping his friend by the shoulder. "'Let them yell again. "'Twas nothing but wonderment. "'He had no occasion to delay.' for at the next instant a burst of cries filled the outer air and ran along the whole extent of the village. Uncas cast his skin and stepped forth in his own beautiful proportions. Hawkeye tapped him lightly on the shoulder and glided ahead. "'Now let the devil strike our scent,' said the scout, tearing two rifles with all their intended accoutrements from beneath a bush and flourishing killdeer, as he handed Uncas his weapon two at least will find it to their deaths. Then throwing their pieces to a low trail, like sportsmen in readiness for their game, they dashed forward, and were soon buried in the somber darkness of the forest.
End of chapter 26. This reading by Gary W. Sherwin of Yukon, Pennsylvania, in the autumn of 2007. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.